0: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Eliza Writes Things Poetry Podcast, where I get to share with you my poetry that punches and soothes, activating empathy and justice, rooted in Christ's body and blood. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know I've taken a little three-week break between my last episode and this one, Um, and truly, I was just pretty burnt out from school, Um, not much besides that, but Tonight, as I record this, I had the pleasure of getting to perform some of my best poetry from this past year on stage at my college in our state-of-the-art brand new theater um, in front of the Red Curtain before a little audience of friends and family, and it was such a gift to be able to share my poetry in that way on a stage as a performance, and I was reading it. I had all of my poems up there with me, so it wasn't memorized, but I was still not just reading it flatly, of course, of course, but performing it, bearing my whole heart and soul on stage. And it was so beautiful to bear my heart and soul through the words of my poetry, and also through my performance. It was such a gift of an experience. Oh my goodness. My first ever poetry performance, and I really, really hope it's not my last. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it's not my last. You might have watched it on Instagram live, and in that case, thank you so much. And if not, if you weren't able to watch it live or attend it live, I recorded the audio with my podcast microphone so that you could listen to it while you are normally podcasting and driving and doing chores and such rather than watching the Instagram live video. And the audio on here is a lot crisper than the audio that my phone picked up for Instagram live. So thank you so much for joining me here to listen to my performance. And I really hope you enjoy it. rose-colored glasses usually prefer something with a little sugar and enough cream to make the cup dark blonde. I will never be the tough love New York woman that my mom and my grandmother are at heart, who coolly sips on the gospel of get up and get it together while she reads the paper and applies lipstick. To their surprise, their successor is a wide-eyed romantic who craves both a crowd in home, a lively dance floor swimming in electric glitter, and a corner table in the library, who feels feelings hard and cries easily at movies. In Paris's gray January 1st, I learned how to appreciate a bottom cappuccino, sand sugar, and abide in the darkness of Gothic cathedrals midwinter. You are so in need of a life spent searching for something bigger than yourself, serving something bigger than yourself. Towering steeples and jewel toned stained glass cut through the fog, cut through the wet cold, cut through the post-Christmas hopelessness. Cut through the gospel of get up and get it together. Cut us in line as we're running late to catch the metro. Cut through the Claire de lune and red roses thrown in a trash can. Cut through me as I run away. You can't dilute the gospel of blood and water with the gospel of cream and sugar. And you can't hustle your way into heaven. I will never be a black coffee drinker. Though this world needs people to do that well, do that truthfully, do that with every bolt inside of them, and never apologize. I am not her. I am not her. I am not get up and get it together. She's pretty busy this week, but we're definitely getting lunch on Monday. The cathedrals will still ring their bells. The metros will still sing the blues. The best gift I ever gave myself was permission to be at home right where I am, right as I am. Just me. Somebody has to give the lavender honey latte at home, and while we're here and now, it might, might as well be me in the metro station Starbucks hung up on gray Flair de Luce, aching violins, or a coffee shop downtown burning with morning light. While we're here and now, it might as well be me cutting through the hopelessness. Thank you guys so much for coming tonight. That was one of my favorite covers ever called, very simply, Black Coffee, and it's about my heart and who I am as a woman. I am so unlike my mother and her mother, who are very much truly get-up-and-to-get-it-together kind of people reading the paper and a fine lipstick and going and going and going. And then I was born (laughs) as their first child, my mother's first child and my grandmother's third granddaughter. And I was this hopeless romantic who belonged more in like Anne of Green Gables or little women than in (laughs) the 21st century. But there's a place for both of us. There is a place for women to do what they do best, which is drinking the black coffee, and then there's a place for women doing what they do best, drinking the honey lavender latte. And we only really and truly serve women and help women when we equip them to do everything possible that they are just made to do. When we not, rather than putting women in boxes of, you have to do this, you have to be this, you have to live up to these expectations, when we just mm-hmm. equip them to be who we were meant, who they were meant to be, that's how we help them set the world on fire. To quote St. Catherine of Siena, be who you were made to be, and you will set the world on fire. This next poem is called Flowers in the Battlefield, and it is about, it is from a beautiful conversation I had with a friend who speaks very poetically, and I literally just like typed out everything she said and (laughs) formatted it into a poem. And it's about both me and his friend's relationships with God. I would describe them as a romantic, not in the sense that we are married to Christ, but that might be my vocation as a Catholic woman, but romantic in the sense that in every instance in which i have stared the pits of hell in the face and i have been in the valley of depths it had to do with my heart beating and beaten and bru- battered and bruised by men and by boys and god lifted me out of that dark valley and placed me on the mountaintop to be with him mm-hmm. he met me in that romantic sense this is called flowers in the battlefield we made in the image of god in emotional ways We grow in spirals to get closer to God, and he is a God who is fierce in all things, who is fierce in pulling us closer to him, magnetic. By the impulse and lifeblood of a million liturgies and amens, amens, who knows his children better than they know themselves, and who holds us tight to his chest when we are bent and half-sobbing, carrying dead realities. I am not interested in a portrait of God that paints him as a passive, a nice guy, amen. I am wildly in love with the God of warriors who fights for me. Who goes to battle for me, he has a love for us that fuels him to get angry at the forces that hurt us, and he does not hurt us. A father never letting go, never surrendering to our enemies on the battle lines. That's the active love I see in God. That's a love that doesn't quit or grow weary. God allows me to fight with him, to be ravaged by pain, to take a sip of the suffering on his cross for my ultimate good. He brings me flowers in the battlefield. Then he slashes the enemy when I'm weak and feel like I'm staring death in the face, dragging St. Michael's sword behind me, walking the fruit line of a million eyeballs, gazing at the Eucharist, and a million reasons why he always brings me flowers in the battlefield. This next poem was recently won me first place in the Helmus Literary Contest in the Walker Bohemian, which was such a treat. And it's about a black gay man in 1987, he has AIDS, and is completely unseen and unwanted and unloved by everyone he comes across, he's also homeless, and some of the characters he encounters are thinking about Princess Diana and Pope John Paul II and how they were huge in spreading love to people who have HIV AIDS, and another character he encounters who does not meet him with love is Sean Thurmond, on his way to offer, to deliver a political speech. And this poem is based on real encounters that my sister has had and her boyfriend have had with the homeless and what they've told me about that and also the play Angels in America by Tony Kushner, which was a really pivotal play in my past four years of studying English and theater, one of the plays that sticks out in my memory the most. is just beautiful. It's called Angels in Spartanburg. Everybody thinks you're dirty. Salvation sunlit home for the homeless won't let him in, so he sleeps in the red sand of Glendale in hopes the rain won't flood him out. Because he feels unworthy of being cleaned, because no one thinks he's clean. It's 1987, and no one knows how to clean him anyway. Everybody thinks you're dirty. He knows the princess shakes hands with people like him. He knows the Pope hugs people like him, but the princess and the Pope aren't the angels of Spartanburg. They aren't here to remind him that he's human. He's convinced God isn't either. Everybody thinks you're dirty. He doesn't think he's ever seen God before, but he knows what God does not look like. He doesn't know who got him sick, but he knows what they look like. Everybody thinks you're dirty. One time, the politician walked by him on his way to Walker for a campaign rally. That's South Carolina's hope. That's our man. You never saw such a patriot. He heard this, and he knew the politician hates the blacks, but calls it protecting whites. So the politician probably hates the blacks who have AIDS even more, and he thought, if the archangel of the Senate, if the moral compass of Dixie Dixieland thinks I'm dirty, then I guess God thinks so too. He thinks, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to die soon. I'm going to die in the red sand of Glendale, alone in the dark, no, in the scalding hot of noon after a day of torrential rain, and my body will be flooded away over shoals that have seen a thousand sad people, and only then, maybe, will I be Everybody thinks you're dirty. He thinks, I'm going to die soon. He thinks, I will see God soon, maybe. I hope God will want me there with him. That poem really breaks my heart, but this next poem breaks my heart in a very different way because it breaks my heart in a way that makes me really, really angry this interim i have had the honor and the privilege and the delight of studying with dr whitfield poetry but even more so than poetry it was originally going to just be poetry and now it is so much nonfiction and critical race theory and history about history of racism in the south particularly as perpetrated by the white christian church and every single day i get my little butt over to the lawford library and i've spent hours in the archives of luke meager and hours just sitting in there reading from some of the most racist stuff I've ever seen, including really, really old things as far back as like the 1830s and as recent as today, racist things today. And every single day I get so angry at all the racism that has been planted in American soil since, since 1619 and then especially perpetrated by white Christians who not only had a capitalist society to convince them that black people were inferior, but also had the Bible that they used to twist and turn, to tell themselves that black people were inferior. It's like doubly as racist as if you're an atheist. And every single day I read all this stuff and I get so, so angry, but by the grace of God, that anger is eclipsed and transformed into a desire and a hope a hope for the church to get better a hope for the church to rather than be some of the main perpetrators of racism to become the magnetic force of good standing at the front of black lives matter rallies because black lives do matter because jesus said that we are all made in his image and white christians historically have been so bad at loving the black and mama day and i want to change that and every single day i get so angry sometimes so angry that i cry but every single day God shows me how to transform that anger into a hope and into a drive to make this church better. I'm so angry at the church, but I'm not giving up on the church. This poem is called Proud Boys Anthem. And it is based on real conversations that I've had with some people who I love and some people who are strangers. Pistol, tucked in his waistband, cocked towards his light-washed jeans. Remember his Confederate heritage because his country hasn't been great since 1861. Gotta make it great again. Whose country? I come from poor whites who didn't even own slaves, he said. Pull the trigger and call it states' rights, people's rights to overthrow corrupt government, southerners' rights to be southern. He bathed the bullet wound in sweet tea and drew a sharp breath as the sugar stung his blood. The blood of whiteheads hidden under a million wishes on stars to be rich and better than those blacks, he says. Great again, the man in the suit said, heaving, choking, puking at blood in a second amendment and a million souths rising again, allegedly making them great again, making them white, why are you crying? Pull the trigger and knee on the neck and call it for the good of the few and the death of the most. The most, the spattering from a hole in his side, the end and tail, not matter if it means they can keep their guns quicker than you can say, Orangeburg Massacre. Why are you crying? The Proud Boys don't care. The Proud Boys saunter past Emmanuel A.M.E. on their way to a million plantations, resurrecting again after Sherman's fire that the history can stay burned if it isn't Confederate. Pull the trigger even while she's sleeping and call it for the good of the white and the death of the black. The rich get sent away from prison, but prison is where Jesus is. Make it great again, they sang. Proud Boys anthem. Pull the trigger and call him strong, the demigod of Dixie, in the fierce upper suit pursuit during 11 a.m. on a Sunday, segregation's finest hour. Pull the trigger and blast away the memory of Robert E. Lee and a million reasons why. The stars in his eyes to be rich, the stars in his eyes of a bronze statue looking southward, wondering if it'll rise again. Make it great again. Who's gonna bet? I come from poor whites who didn't even own slaves, he says. Proud boys anthem." them. This next poem is called Sermon at a Slave holding Church, and it is exactly that. Drawn from things that I read from, particularly that's written during the antebellum era, during the Civil War, and even after the Civil War, defending slavery from a Christian standpoint, which is the most heartbreaking to me. Sermon at a Slaveholding Church, 1854. Blessed are the whipping hands. White petticoats and white shirts stroll in the marble sanctuary. Praise God, praise God, for he has looked upon his son's pride with pride and has given us a great cotton crop this year to weave the stars of the flag we worship. Blessed are the wealthy hands. God divinely chose us to rule over blacks, to teach them his ways. Praise God, praise God. They can never make it on their own. We worship their backs until we harvest the red blood of the flag we worship. God tells us that we are the Israelites. Blessed are the winning hands. Traitors to the state burn in hell when the poker round is over. Praise God, praise God. People are objects when their skin color is not porcelain. The color of purity, the color of Noah's dove, of promise, the color not of hand. Blessed are the white hands, divinely appointed. We deserve everything we have and have never worked for. Praise God, praise God. We know we have his favor because of the wealth he has given us. Blue skies of the flag we worship fly forever over us. Jesus doesn't bless the freed slaves, traitors, terrorists, mobs, cowards, sinners, obsessed with their own race. Praise God, praise God, for we are able and they are king. Liberals are obsessed with race. Blessed are the slave holding hands. It must be his will for some people to have more worth than others. Praise God, praise God. Blessed are we who hunger and thirst for white superiority and black submission, for who we are satisfied. And to make it clear, that poem is written not on my own opinion at all, but on what was written in these super, super racist books that I had read during this interim justifying white supremacy and slavery from a Christian standpoint. And I would like to add that the line, liberals are obsessed with race, is a direct quote from a Tommy Warren tweet in December, and it just makes me laugh. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. I need Jesus because I cannot exist in a dark world without the stars in Christ's eyes. I cannot get out of bed without seeing that he has already fought the battle for me, hurts for me, thirsts for me, rolled every headstone apart, and a million reasons why for me, brought me flowers in the battlefield, asked me to dance with him in the resurrection, won the gold of heavenly courts for me, sung old sweet songs to make me smile. I need Jesus because I suck. I punch the wound, the sword gash in his side for good measure because like a sinner, I don't believe his blood and water will come out of it unless I help myself. But he's always already promised me so. So? The world is so tired and there's nothing you can do about it. Why would you believe in a God who lets people suffer? They ask me. Because I need Jesus. Because I can't keep myself alive without his death. Because I can't resurrect my sick self and I need him to resurrect himself for me. Make me more like him because his love slays demons that want me happily hostage, and I can't, I can't, I run to his arms like a child who lost your father in the middle of a million lives. I can't find him, so he finds me. I can't find him unless I stop searching for fulfillment in anything beside his body and blood sacrificed for me. But sin tastes so good. I need Jesus because I don't know what joy is without him, because he hopes we'll finally see him for who he is. Who he created us to be, praise God, praise God, I can't be alive without him and his flowers in the battlefield. I need Jesus because life doesn't add up without his resurrection. Because we'd be better off desolate if we had to live without his new life. Because survival is for the weakest of us made strong by him. Because without dancing with him in the garden by the empty tomb, without letting his risen blood and water anoint me all over. Because without his blood and water, I am not free because he is the only one who never, ever abandons me. I take his extended hand and we dance in the resurrection. Another poem about my relationship with Jesus being, in the literary sense, romantic, in that he rescues me from the pits of when I'm staring hell in the face. And the title of this poem called Blood of Christ, Inebriate Me is from a beautiful, beautiful poem that my spiritual director gave to me during Lent, which is, in this poem, you call upon the different wounds of Christ, and you say, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me. And that one struck me right from the beginning, because I didn't know what the word inebriate meant. And she said, it means drunkenness. To be inebriated means to be drunk. And so in this beautiful prayer, this really, really raw and honest prayer, we are begging for Jesus' blood to completely pour out onto us for us to get drunk on him because life is really, really hard and life is really, really heartbreaking and frankly, I know no other way to be on this earth, to get through life on this earth without being drunk on Jesus' blood Mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean so drunk that I don't know what's (laughs) happening, it doesn't mean so drunk that everything is just an illusion and I'm not myself for we are made holier or We become more of ourselves when we become more like Jesus. We become more like ourselves when we become holier. And so all that's left to do is just beg to be drunk on Jesus' blood, and He will and He does it. There's a beautiful, beautiful conversion story of the soldier on Calvary when Jesus was hanging on the cross and dying. After he had already died, one of the Roman soldiers was charged by whoever the head Roman soldier was, too. Stabbed Jesus' aside to see if he was really dead or not. And so the soldier took his lance, his sword, whatever it was, stabbed it into his right side. And the sword pierced from the right side into his heart. This is where we get the beautiful iconography in Catholicism of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. But after this Roman soldier stabbed Jesus' right side, blood and water completely sued out from it and completely washed over and covered this Roman soldier. And he got on his knees right on the spot and proclaimed that Jesus was God. And he had literally helped to kill him. But Jesus' blood and water streaming forth from his side was so, so, so powerful he could not resist it. And in the, middle, in the middle of heaven being ripped open and earth being ripped open because Christ crucified and finally died, someone who had a hand in it, a very, very intentional hand in it, Converted right on the spot, and as he had a hand of it, we will with our sin. We have no choice, but to be drunk on the crucifixion, to be drunk on Jesus' blood and water, being forth from his side, the blood and the water and mercy and grace. This is why I love being Catholic, because there's so much beautiful imagery. This next poem is really, really close to my heart, because it is in a sense a eulogy to all the times I blared down the exit ramp in Charleston to downtown off of I-26 and saw men and women holding cardboard signs, asking for money, asking for anything that helps, and I looked straight ahead and completely ignored them. And I don't know who taught me to ignore the homeless. I don't know who in society is responsible for making it so normal and acceptable to act like we don't see the homeless when they they are standing right there in the shared space with us right there at this red stoplight while we are in our cars in the comfort of the wealth of our cars and the wealth of all the wealth that we have and they apparently do not have. I don't know who taught me that it was okay to ignore the homeless and act like they're not human because I refuse to give them eye contact. But some conversation that I don't remember with someone convicted me last summer of that, and that was when I changed that habit and decided, no, this is so, so, so heinous of us. To act like the homeless are less human than we are just because they have less money than we do. To act like just because someone is in this shared space on an exit ramp or at a stoplight but isn't in a car and is instead holding the cardboard sign means that they are less worth their humanity, less worth eye contact, and a smile than we are. There should be nothing that stops us from simply smiling at the homeless. So this is called the funeral. Why do I refuse to look the man holding a cardboard sign in the eye? Why do I refuse his humanity? Line up a line of scowling cars stare down a man holding a cardboard sign on the King Street exit of I-26. Christ crucified's funeral. Christ magnified in the corporal reality of the poor of us and the rich of us, so we know they go to different places. In my rearview mirror, I watch headlights and sunglasses stare his sign down, sharpie on cardboard. Fresco on Sistine, 10,000 souls blaring well-contended podcasts and musings on their American nightmares until leather shoes screech on the brakes and tires lurch forward. The gospel of mind run business. He paces up and down the yellow media in his dazzling stage where none of those leather shoes would be caught alive on stage fright murders the rich. He inquires, do you care about those that aren't yourself? Or will you pretend that you don't see me because the presence of poverty makes you uncomfortable? Am I your invisible neighbor? Am I I with you no longer, pretending that you don't notice me? Am I human to you? He searches every windshield for eye contact, a smile, some recognition that yes, I am here, I exist. My sharpie on cardboard is as much masterpiece of the human story as the fresco on Sistine is. I am just as much masterpiece of humanity as you. I am just as loved by God as you, the gospel of eye contact. Sunglasses look the other way while scowling car car stare staring down, a funeral to recognize this humanity because no one is willing to love in a way that costs them their pride. Christ crucified's funeral possession continues on green. This poem is called The Bees Are Dying at an Alarming Rate, and it is about feeling really, really overwhelmed by all the bad in the world, but also wanting so badly. The bees are dying at an alarming rate, but aren't you also? My existence requires that I believe in a God who is for me, who uses his omniscience to cradle my head as I cry jewel-toned tears over spilled honey, shows me the wound in his side so that I can know that he is like me. Until I get up and say, no God, I can do this on my own. I don't care about the bees. I can't care about the bees anymore. The world is pitch black, spinning circles around itself, and my friend is dying fast, and my hands are numb, and I can barely get out of bed in the morning, and I don't know where. I let myself distract myself because it makes me feel busy and important. I scream, the bees are dying at an alarming rate and there are a million other problems in the world and I beg you, I beg you, do you see? I have so much to care about. Drunk on hot blue anger, I wrestle with you until my bones turn frail and I've been outdone, outlasted by a God who lives longer than I do because he lives for forever. I pinch the wound in your side for good measure because I'm the worst and I say, the bees are still dying, God. <laughs> don't care? Why are people so unhappy all the time? My emerald tears his house of glass. He holds my head to his chest again because he knows that fatherhood is what we need. He lets the blood from his brittle, piercing crown, gnashing into his skull, trickle onto mine, anointing, claiming me forever in the name of the one who created my existence. The blood cleans my eyes out. It's beautiful, but I don't like it.
1: The bees are still dying, but I am here.
0: That line, it's beautiful, but I don't like it, is something that Carrie Ferguson told us in my freshman year in Theater for Youth class. Something that her son said in response to her taking him to see a ballet. He said, it's beautiful, but I don't like it. (laughs) And I just really love that because it is true that things can be beautiful and we don't like them. When we suffer, it's beautiful, but we don't like it. Not every every single art is something that we like, but it still can be beautiful. That's just really, really stayed with me for the past four years. This next poem is really close to my heart because it is about one of the hardest experiences I had during my past four years at Watford, which was dating someone who had an addiction and or habit to watching porn. And that experience, I stayed in that relationship for, for a really long time because I did not know what I had gotten into. I didn't know if I should get out. turns out I should have. And I didn't know the full extent to the trauma that being in that relationship would put upon my heart and how much, how many tears would be shed trying to get over that, trying to learn that my worth was not in the attention I did not receive as he gave it to other people on his phone screen. It has convicted me so, so, all the more much of the beauty of women and of the importance of loving in a relationship that is here and in person and not lusting after people on a phone screen. Because truly, I really do believe that I was cheated on in that relationship. It was really, really difficult, that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> As I overcame that and came out of that, I am so much more able to affirm the humanity of others, especially women who are caught in the same situation and to affirm those who do struggle with watching it that how much more free and fully alive and fully themselves they will be once they break free, and I've seen it broken free from, them. it's a beautiful thing. This plays off of the this, excuse me Bible story about Cain and Abel. Instead of Cain and Abel, and Abel is turned instead into a girl. It's about how in the Bible story, Cain smashes his brother Abel's head or skull with a rock because he's jealous of him or something like that. I don't entirely remember. And in the case of pornography, pornography deeply, deeply distorts, the the person who watches porn, watching porn deeply distorts their ability to see other human beings as human. It teaches their brain to see human beings as objects of sexual desire, rather than as fully human. And porn is so bad for our entire culture as a whole because it contributes to really, really objectifying. Cain smashing the head of Ableene metaphorically, because he's in a weird and thwarted way jealous of her beauty and doesn't know how to contend with her beauty, because sometimes guys watch porn because they feel like they can't get a girlfriend in real life, but on the internet, they can conquer woman after woman after woman, upwards of hundred and a night. Keenan as long as you are still watching porn, I am not free. You look at me with green scales over your eyes, filtering the beauty you see in this world through lenses of use, objectification, a collection of photoshopped body parts being worth what they can perform, a night of tapping to the next video of XXX. X, X. You live in a pixelated fantasy land where no woman can tell you no, I am not there. But you still see me differently because lust changes everything. She is not your tool, she is not yours to use, she is not yours to make an object out of, she is not yours to all your unfulfilled desires, my sisters on your phone screen are not yours to bend backwards, twisting into a million spineless sex positions for your pleasure only. Manipulation reigns king as you divorce our hearts from our bodies just so that you can feel something, anything. A trap that tells you it'll bring you to life, it'll make you feel better, I promise you it won't. I know why you did it. You were bored, you were lonely, you felt numb on the inside, you couldn't sleep, you screwed up at work, your sister, girlfriend, fiance, wife of 20 years, daughter made you feel like a coward, and you don't really feel like a man to begin with, you feel so small. So you turn to the thing that makes you feel big, so you turn to women who can't deny you, so you turn to the women who aren't given the option to consent, so you can feel more powerful, almighty, a god in a twin-sized bed. Lost in the corner of suburbia, and the last time you regarded a beautiful woman as truly beautiful and human. Cain killed Abel by slicing his head open. Cain killed Abelene by shoving her into a series of binary codes and telling her that she is only allowed to be sexualized. God spent that night sobbing over the slow murder of the souls of his beloved daughters, mourning man's thwarting of their beauty by beholding it with sin. His moonlight leaps in your window while you ignore Abelene for your phone screen. The devil's favorite cocktail is the laziness of men. Remember, your blinds don't hide everything. You say, it's just a tap, tap, tap on your phone screen. So you tap it to keep us trapped in the slavery of trafficking and objectification and belief that we as women are only worth what we can perform in a bed share by thousands. thousand. I got tired of sharing. So I will sit here and tap, tap, tap on the digital chains you have shackled thousands of girls into by adding to the demand for porn. I'll tap until their weights are broken. Tap to set them free. Tap, tap, tap on the glass ceiling above, above my coffin. Tap by speaking out and speaking up. Tap to set all women free from your iron-fisted hammer of lust, from the green scales over your eyes, keeping you from seeing us as we are. More than a collection of body parts, tap until we are seen as whole human beings. Tap until you are free from being frozen and green. Tap until you are free too. Kane killed Abelene by shoving her into a series of binary codes and telling her that she is only allowed to be sexualized. You take after your father, King. And that poem only barely mentions the fact that most women in porn videos are trafficked into the industry, just one mention of it, but that is such a sad and really dark reality as well. This next poem is more positive. (laughs) It is, again, about the way I relate to God in a way that is romantic, and it draws on the gothic narrative that we see in Cinderella's Snow White, Sleeping beauty of women being rather than agents of their own lives, being just the recipients of a ton of decisions made by others, and now I really, really don't like that gothic narrative. I had a beautiful awakening in Dr. Hall's um, English Romantics upper level English class when she explained the gothic narrative to us, and I said, oh my gosh, that's what I've been <laughs> believing is the role of women for my entire life, I've been and had a beautiful awakening and a beautiful journey more more into feminism and in fully understanding for myself that I only need to be what God has created me to be. I only need to be what I am best at being, and that does not have to be Cinderella, who was my favorite Disney princess when I was a child. Yesterday, I smashed my glass slippers at the foot of the cross. Barefoot I went, I ran down both the past Pharisees and pompous faces, past cynicism and pride and snide remarks, kicking up rocks, crying out in silence, I kicked up dust clouds behind me, grinning as the Jerusalem sun beat down my back, the sweetest taste of finally flying with no one in my way, with nothing in my way. I ran past wondering if I'm good enough, past cyclical fear that the future will be awful, past tornadoes of anxiety engulfing my existence, past believing the lies screamed at me by every dollar bill flooded into a capitalism that is against all of us, that women are only worthy as we are charming and skinny, that my inheritance is to die to myself and become an object for others' dollar bills. And I ache to be fully alive instead. So I ran down bold with that all the way to the empty tomb to meet my lord. We have to be careful about how we tell fairy tales. Because when we are not careful, these stories teach us that our womanhood is defined by what other people think about us being objects of desire and consumers of products. We have to be careful because these stories have taught me and so many other women to believe in romanticized lives such as that prettiness is a virtue and that God is a magician. That as long as we are the nicest girl in the general area, we will get the man, the wealth, the status, dying to our living selves to become disposable in the process. A dead girl with perfect eyeliner and a soul sold to Wall Street, and it wasn't her fault. It wasn't her fault. The man, the wealth, the status have only ever fulfilled me temporarily and in the end left me feeling empty or whenever I put all of my worth in them coming true. And wishes for death by dollar bill coming true. What good are dreams come true if they aren't good for us? Yesterday, I decided that we are not as worthy as we have the dollar bills that the suited man who worships his golf clubs tells us to have.
1: We are not as worthy as we have dollar bills and
0: attention from boys Or do not hear that again. We are not as worthy as we have The glass slippers were pinching my feet because they weren't designed to fit me anyway. They were made for a shell of a woman who doesn't even exist. And I'm so sorry if you ever bought into that lie and would need to be the shell of a woman. I bought into that lie until I smashed my glass slippers at the foot of the cross and ran down Golgotha to the empty tomb to meet my Lord. He bathed and bandaged my bleeding feet from where the shards cracked my soles when I smashed the slippers at the foot of his cross. I'm clean now. This is my story, and here I can be the protagonist who is herself who gives herself permission to run as fast as she can, barefoot, flying, has Pharisees and pompous faces, has cynicism and pride and snide remarks over rocks, crying out in silence, kicking up dust clouds behind me, grinning, finally, for The glass slippers were pinching and bleeding my feet, and I can't dance with God if I'm living. That poem is also about mental illness. This next poem... It was really heavy on my heartbeat because it is about the annual AME shooting that happened in Charleston almost six years ago. I was 16 at the time and it was very sweet for me because personally I was at my summer camp and they told us and so I was able to receive that information in a place of prayer but this story is not about me at all. It is about Charleston. It is about the people of Charleston coming together and deciding that hate does not have the last word in the city. It is about the beautiful, beautiful hearts of the families of those nine beautiful black lives taken by a man who really and truly believed that the South should rise again, that the Confederacy should have won, and that black people are inherently inferior. Taken by a man who took pictures in front of plantations which I'm now calling enslaved labor farms, because that's what they were took pictures in front of the plantations before he went to this church. He went to various Confederate sites up in the upstate, or right around here, before he went and did this deed. All the time, I think about, and I listen to, the clip of Barack Obama singing Amazing Grace at the end of his eulogy during the funeral for Reverend Clement McIntyre and the eight others who were killed alongside him. I listen to that clip all the time because Nothing is as chilling in your bones as an entire chorus of a people who've been oppressed for 400 years, who have been told that their lives don't matter for 400 years. Nothing is as chilling in your bones as a chorus of people singing Amazing Grace and deciding that Amazing Grace has not put on them. Even in the midst of a terrible, heinous and ugly tragedy, Amazing Grace has not put on them. And Amazing Grace never will. Emmanuel is... Either Hebrew or Greek or Latin for God with us. But I don't remember which language. And so this poem is called God with Us. It has been six years since a white criminal declared people of color unworthy of having life and decided to do something about it. Since the families of those who suffered his hatred said, We forgive you, refusing to start a war against the love that he wanted. Since Charleston put on her sackcloth and ashes mourning, vowing to never let hatred find a home in the holy city again like it did for hundreds of years. As enslaved people pass through her ports and auction houses. It has been a long six years. It has been a longer four hundred more for some. Evil exists in this world, and I don't need to tell you that, but I do need to tell you that we can reach out to those who are suffering, we can look the brokenhearted in the eye. We can surrender our prejudices that we never before understood the implications of and no longer give them a home in our hearts. We can have the humility to owe up to it when we are wrong. We can have the humility to apologize and change. This is called saying, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We can have the humility to say to ourselves, to our friends, to our enemies, go and sin no more. Go and fight for what's worth fighting for. Go and learn from your mistakes. Go and renounce the hatred you used to allow. Go and send into exile the hatred you have left, found a home in your heart. God with us. What we must do is rise to the challenge to defend love. This is a mission worth being teachable for, worth seeing through. It has been six years since our president sang Amazing Grace on live television at the funeral of nine souls. Nine beating, blazing black hearts who welcomed that man with open arms into their house of God, only to be sent to God while bowing their heads in prayer. Our president sang of hope, of life being worth living, of resurrection, how sweet a sound. It has been a long six years, it will be another long six more, it will be another long who knows how long, but amazing grace doesn't quit. Amazing grace knows that we have been here 10,000 years, that we might be here 10,000 more, but that every single day, grace will lead us home. Amazing grace doesn't quit. Thank you.